Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. What's going on, everybody? Hope you are having a wonderful week so far. Um, before we start, I just would love it if you could all hit subscribe. Um, it just keeps the podcast going and it, it makes it more fun for all of us when more people hear it. And please share it with your friends. So podcast time. This week's a special one. Laid back Luke really doesn't need any introduction. Has been in the electronic music industry for a very long time since the mid 90s had multiple successes in his careers from techno to electro house to then being one of the biggest djs in edm and pretty much curating a sound that was the biggest sound in the world at that time and when djs became rock stars touring the world hundreds and hundreds of nights throughout the year just being the biggest artist in the world at, at one point um i am in like a dj group um and luke and i started talking together um, a couple of months ago i met him in miami um in my in march and i asked him to come on the podcast which was great because i've always followed luke's career and he's always been kind of always there in the peripheries of of what uh, of somebody that i've always looked up to i guess and in 2008 his record b was one of the biggest records in the house electro house whatever the genre was at that time and i played it all the time and it's just an absolute honor to get him on the podcast so I'm going to stop rambling and without further ado, Layback Luke. Mr. Layback Luke, what's cooking? Hey, what's up, Will? How are you? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good, man. Really good. Did you uh, sort out the visa application? Man, this was a, a, a last minute drastic move that I needed to make because my visa is running out on August 5th. And just oh, now I saw that there's no appointments until August 22nd which means I can't work in America for like three weeks. That's crazy. Where did you, um, where are you trying to get an appointment? In Amsterdam. If you yeah. get stuck, let me know. Okay. I, I know somebody. So during COVID, <laughs> hey. yeah, during COVID, um, obviously we had a nightmare with our visas and I got put in touch with a guy from Texas, a lawyer from Texas and he ended up getting me an appointment in Monterey in Mexico. Like wow. literally there wasn't any appointments anywhere. And then he, he typical America, he went to, um, I should get him on the podcast actually, but good, good conversation. He, um, he went to the school, he went to law school with the guy that runs the Monterey embassy. Um, so he was literally just like throwing people in black. It was black coffees manager, Chrissy. Um, 
she because they they got him to do it for him and yeah absolute genius that guy saved my ass you know what I, i've heard about a bunch of uh, djs that that went through mexico yeah and did this so that's interesting it's much easier it was actually the easiest appointment i've ever had and you know sometimes you have to wait like 10 days to get your passport back the next day they give it to you oof whoa yeah all right that's and it, great info it's not any more <laughs> expensive it's the same cost Wow. So it's like, wow, wow. and you get to spend some days in Monterey. Amazing. Where are you at the moment? I'm in New York. Nice. Is that, I'm is that your home base? Yeah, pretty much throughout the pandemic. Nice, yes. man. So when did you move to New York? Was it at, at the beginning? Uh, well, I, I actually got married about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm to uh to my, my ex mm-hmm. and we had a baby here we had a, a baby daughter yep and so uh throughout the pandemic before the pandemic i would travel back and forth to the netherlands because of my two sons in the yeah, netherlands yeah. and due to the pandemic i i stayed i chose to stay in new york because my daughter uh at the time was only six yeah yeah and my boys are like well they're grown grown men now older. so Amazing. yeah they're very much older are they in so, the netherlands yeah. as well yeah, so the boys are in the Netherlands. They're currently mm. 21 and 18. Nice. And my daughter over here is eight. And uh, actually, we, we just announced this week that my my wife and I are expecting. Oh, amazing. Congrats. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, I just keep on producing. I yeah, guess. geez, man. That's going to be busy and expensive. Yes, all of that, <laughs> for sure. How, how do you find living in New York? Um. Well, I live actually in uh, like a more of a suburban area, okay. so it's uh, upstate. Nice. We call it here, so out of the city. But if I want to be on Times Square, I it's like a twenty-five minute drive. Oh, really? And so I actually enjoy the nice and quiet. Mm. And then whenever I want some some madness, you can just hop into the city. Yeah, man. I um I love New York. I was there a couple of weeks ago, and it's literally my favorite city in the world. I used to live in Williamsburg. Um, and honestly, if, if I wasn't touring so much and I could actually enjoy living in New York because I'm actually wow. there, I would move there tomorrow. It's, wow, really? Yeah, man. It's, it's my favorite place. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to throw some shade into like the New York dream and uh, for everyone that's, uh, that's hearing this and probably the New Yorkers that are tuned in can agree with me. The winters are crazy. <laughs> this year, we've had, well, we're kind of still in, in here, six months of winter. Mm-hmm. I kid you not. Six months. I live in Detroit when I'm in America. Um, and the winters there are brutal as well. Yeah, that's even worse, man. Proper brutal. It gets cold. Um, I like winters, though. I'm a bit, I'm, I'm a weird, weird person. Not many people like winters, but I, I like the full seasons. Oof. Yeah, I couldn't live in. Well, I used to live in LA, and I'm just not a fan because it's just constantly fucking sunny, and you're just like, <laughs> come on, it just turns you into a weak human being. Sorry to well. all the people from California, but yeah, um, I want to. I want to talk about. I've got a lot to talk about with you. Um, I'm. I'm really intrigued into your life and your career. I kind of want to go back to where it all started to start with um i've got a lot of questions to ask you throughout it but i'd love to 
love to find out when it started for you and how it started for you. How it started for me was I came from a musical family. My dad plays guitar and bass. Uh, my uncle plays played a bit of piano. And usually when the family got together, they would form like a musical band and they would like sing songs with the, with the whole family. Mm. I was always a bit intrigued with that. And at a certain point, I started to touch keys and whatnot. And my dad has a, a proud baby picture of me and him like me as a baby holding the guitar and he's playing the guitar. And so I had a bunch of that throughout my youth, but mm. I was the one guy in the family. So I, I do need to tell you that my, my brother, for instance, is an incredible drummer mm. and he drums hardcore music. So not hardcore, the electronic music, yeah, yeah. but hardcore, the punk music. Yeah, yeah. When he drums, it's like he's moving eight limbs and it's super high BPM I was the one guy in the family that couldn't keep a rhythm with the fingers <laughs> and I could play, but I was, I was never like any good. Like mm. I could barely like achieve the songs that we were playing and I always got made fun of. Yeah. And, um, at a certain point when I was 15, a friend of mine showed me, uh, on an Amiga computer, he had Technotronics pump up to jam on there in, uh, mm. in tracker, I believe it was. And he showed me how to mute the, the beats mm. or to solo out the chords. And I was like, dude, so mind you, this is 1992. And I, I asked him, dude, so you can use a computer to make music? Like you can program the notes? And instantly I was like, man, so all of this music that has always been stuck in my head, which I couldn't perform, I can now program. Amazing. And this was a revelation. Yeah. I was like, man, when I, when I found that out, I knew, I really knew that this was what I wanted to do the rest of my life. So in contrary to what a lot of people think, I actually started as a producer. And from then on, I, um, I started to, to produce mm. on anything I could get my hands on because we, we, didn't, have, we didn't really have a computer yet yeah. at that time. So I found out that uh, in my dad's uh, Casio keyboard there was a, a sequencer mm. and so I would just uh, try and uh, program a, a drum beat or like record a drum beat for like three minutes long yeah. and then record the chords and uh, that sort of thing and then when my dad got the first PC I started making music on that but that sucked because I couldn't sample with it yeah. and it was literally the first sound card ever in that PC and it sounded like nothing. So yeah. <laughs> was it the sound uh, card that you had to put the like headphone jack in and then the speakers out of that? Yeah, no, but it was, it was almost as if um, like we're talking, we're not even talking about eight bit sounds mm. right now. It's like nothing remotely. Cause you know, I obviously was a, a real big fan of house music already. Mm. And it took me a good, one and a half to two years to find out what a, a what a 909 hi-hat was. And I was searching all over and my Casio keyboard didn't have it. And, <laughs> you know, at a, at a certain point, this friend of mine said, dude, you can just sample that. Mm. And I was like, what? What sampling. is sampling? Yeah. <laughs> what? So did you ever, because back in the 90s, it was, it's hard to make music. It's, it wasn't as easy as and accessible as it is now. Um did you ever go the hardware route where you were like started on NPCs and things like that? Absolutely. That's yeah. so that's actually the, the next chapter. Yeah. 
because when I found out how all of these tracks were being made, my, my, I remember a glorious summer where my dad said, oh, a, a co-worker of mine has this keyboard, mm. like a fancy keyboard. And uh, you can borrow it for the summer. Like, I know you're making music and whatnot. Would you be interested? I'm like, dude, bring it over to my bedroom. And so he brought it in and it was a massive keyboard. And it was actually the original Korg M1. Oh, wow. Dude, when I came across that house piano uh, <laughs> preset, and by this time, you know, we ha we've had like Robin S yeah. and Nightcrawlers and all of that. I was like, playing. No, mm. <laughs> that's it. The only thing was that Hyatt I was looking for was not in there. But throughout the whole of that summer, I was just making tracks and demos mm. with that thing. And I'm, I'm just thinking, did I use the MIDI, MIDI uh, out of, of the PC? Probably. Yeah. But yeah, I just remember my, my dad storming in at a certain point midsummer, and I had just been in my bedroom for days on end, day and night, and he's like, dude, you need to get outside. And I'm like, <laughs> dad, but I'm enjoying this. Like, I'm making tracks, and yeah, sounds so awesome. I love that. It's it's amazing what happens when you like that first feeling of when you actually get it and you're like, oh my God, I'm actually making music for the first time. And it it probably sounds terrible, but it's still the best feeling ever. Yeah, I'm I'm so happy we're talking about this because if, if we're really going to go to like day one, yeah. I remember slowing down house beats because I was like, how... How did they program that? Yeah. So at a certain point I had made a, it was like a very cheap little Casio keyboard mm -hmm. that I had that you could like take two second samples with. And I could actually slow that, slow that down. Mm. And at a certain point when slowed down, I heard, oh, wait a second. It's a closed hi-hat mm. right in between the kick drum and the hi-hat or straight after. And I was like, when I slowed it down, it was like, Yeah, I was like, whoa, okay, so this is it. <laughs> like my first house loop ever. I dissected it. And, and mind you, we did not have Internet, like no, literally. Yeah, there was no Internet. It was so there was no tutorials. There was nothing like I had to figure it out mm. on my own. How, so I did. How did you get into the house music, though? Because it's a very how old were you then? That's, that's uh, yeah, 15. So 15. how? What got you into the house music? Was house music in the Netherlands big then? Well, similarly to the UK, yeah. this first uh, wave of house music taking over, mm. uh, coming coming from America, uh, what was it, 88, 89, yeah. all of that? Mm -hmm. uh, this was as big as yeah. in the Netherlands. Um, granted, in, uh, in the UK, it went a bit ravey. Yeah. We were more, apart from like the whole Gabber scene and hardcore scene exploding we had like a, a mellow side to it mm. to it which was all well i remember little louis french kiss classic hitting number one in the in the top 40 charts wow as as is in the netherlands what year was that well i need to look it up when but did that I, come I, out i've got to yeah. find that out because i believe it was like 89 or something was it really that early little louis french kiss Release date. 
It came out 1989, yeah. There you go. A long time ago. And so, yeah, I, I heard this music. I was mesmerized with it. Coming from, uh, like, listening to, growing up to a lot of pop and, and early hip-hop, mm. I was um, uh, amazed by the energy and the tempo it had, yeah. where there was a sort of, like, energy to it, like a basic rhythm that you just wanted to dance to. Mm. And I uh, quickly noticed that had to do with, like, uh, the, the kick drum being just 4-4. And then the the crazy crazy synths and sounds where it was like this doesn't sound like a piano or this doesn't sound like a bass guitar. Mm. I mean that sounds like an organ, but it's not an organ. You know, I know from like pop songs. Yeah, yeah. And this is what I loved about it for sure. It's amazing how when in the '90s and even to the extent like the early 2000s, when the internet wasn't as available as it is today and how everyone had to work out how to do something in their own little way. And I feel like it's <clears throat> then it was even more of a passion to, it was kind of like this like secret for everybody. And when you found the secret and you kind of unlocked it, you were like, okay, I'm in, I'm in for, for life now. And it's a, do you do you feel it's different? Well, of course it's different nowadays, but do you feel it kind of has taken a little bit of the value away or do you think it's benefited the industry now of, of how it is? It's just evolution. Mm. If I uh, look at my own development, it took me a good 10 years to be able to sound remotely professional. Same. And nowadays kids, after three years... They can sound professional and, yeah. and all the info that's needed is out there. And mm. it's wonderful. I mean, you know, all of us Google things that we don't know and yeah. it's just here and it's so much easier. So, yeah, I I actually appreciate it. Mm. No, I think it brings a lot to the industry where we not just to the industry, to the world. The Internet has made the world a smaller place, but a more knowledgeable place. Don't get me wrong. There's some bullshit in there, but there's a lot of good as well that's come out of it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think it's given us all longevity um, and able to like grow in different territories and being able to for our music to be heard in different territories that would never have been heard like back in the 90s in the vinyl day, even early 2000s with the vinyls. Like you're not going to be worldwide specifically. Some people are, but compared to the amount of DJs that are nowadays, it was never going to be like that. No, and so uh, for the people that are younger and that are listening to this, can you imagine a world without, so obviously without internet, but without social media, mm. there was no social media, nothing. And so the only promotion you had were magazines and possibly ads in magazines. Yeah. And then you had the, the literal prod, uh, product. So the vinyls you put out, they would go, if you had the right distribution, they would go worldwide. Mm. And through the actual music that you release, your name would spread. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing how it used to happen, to be fair. I, I, I learned on vinyl, but I, I, my first release, it was when it was turned digital. Um, what year was this, Well, My first release was... 2007 i think i was 17 
at the time. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing how how it's gone so quickly. Really, um, I want to go back to the start and. Were your parents really supportive of you? Ah, I, I, I love that uh, question. Because the same moment that my dad waltzed into my, um, my bedroom where I was spending my whole summer making music on this uh, M1 synthesizer, he said, but why are you uh, throwing your whole summer away to make music? And I'm like, Dad, this is something that I love. This is something that I want to do the rest of my life, and mm. I want to make a living out of this. Mm. And he said, such nonsense. Do you know how many kids uh, want to do this for a living? And you need to find like a real job mm-hmm. and spend, spend your time on something else. And I was like, Dad, you watch me. <laughs> so the door got closed, and I started even making more music. And I uh, kind of... One of my goals was to prove my dad wrong. Yeah, which uh, now we we often talk about it how how immensely wrong he was, <laughs> and uh, and it's been it's been a weird one with my kids because mm. they they have dreams they have goals. For instance, my oldest son he wants to be a game designer. Amazing. And a couple of years ago, I I caught myself storming into his room, saying, "Why are you spending days <laughs> and nights behind the computer gaming?" And I was like, oh, let me back up. Yeah. And I closed the door. You know, the, the it's such a tremendous industry, the gaming industry, mm. and he uh, he wants to do this. And, you know, I can only support that. Um, but, yeah, so so my, my dad, okay, so my dad let that be. And at a certain point, uh, my uncle gave me his old computer. Speaking of gaming, I was gaming on his Atari ST Amazing. throughout the summer. And then I found out that there was a musical program on there. Cubase? And it, Cubase. Yeah. It was called Cubase. And I was like, hmm, this doesn't look like that tracker mm. program I know, but let me figure this out. And I remember buying my my first sampler, which was an Akai. Akai, Akai 21, was it 2100? This was one. Uh, so it was not an MPC. No, Akai... Um... I I used to work with one years ago. Akai twenty one was it twenty one sampler? I've got to Google this, sorry for everybody. Yeah. Oh no, it wasn't that. Yeah. S one thousand. Oh that that really rings a bell. Did it look like this? Oh no, no. Mine had keys. Oh Mine really? Had you keys. had a key? Mine, yeah. Damn, you were to, fancy. It, somewhat fancy fancy version okay but uh yeah so mind you 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 got what was it either eight seconds or 16 seconds total sample time yeah like 16 (laughs) megabytes and it worked with floppy disks right and um i had bought a sample cd and on that sample cd were a couple of 909 hi-hat and kick drum samples amazing so you found it eventually Man, when I first started to use that actual kick drum and that actual hi-hat, I felt my productions leveled up mm. so much because all of a sudden I could sound like those real guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I have to give a shout-out uh, to my uh, mentor, uh, uh, Gaston. He mm-hmm. is from Chocolate Puma. Oh, wow. Uh, 
And by that time, uh, they were the good men. They had scored some hits and whatnot. And I found out that he uh, was on this uh, the same high school as myself. Amazing. Uh, but he had just graduated and he was playing my uh, my high school prom party. And I had been making music with this Atari and this sampler by now. And I had a few demos. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make a demo tape. Mm. And he's going to DJ there. So this is my shot to like, okay, so I'm just going to go up to him and say, hi, I'm Luke. I'm from this school as well. I make music too. Here's my demo. So this actually happened, you know, super nervous. It was uh, he, he played an awesome set. And there goes the demo tape. Was that a CD? Like, uh, no, no, uh, tape. Tape, like little, actual tape. Little Damn. cassette tape. Yep, cassette tape. And uh, so he had the tape, and I was like, I'm in. Like, he was really nice about it. Mm. I'm in. So, uh, yeah, I waited a good uh, good three weeks for a response because, obviously, my, my phone number was on the yeah. cassette tape. And uh, no response. I was like, oh, okay. No, maybe he didn't like it, but um, through through some mutual acquaintances, I found out his uh, his home phone number. And this is the funny thing as well, because I called it and his mom picked it up. So he was still <laughs> living at his parents. And I was like, I'm Luke. I gave Gaston this demo a couple of weeks ago. I didn't hear back from him. Would you mind checking with him? Mm. Like, I would just love a response. His mom was like, okay, I'm going to do it. A few weeks go by. I don't hear anything. Call the mom again. Mom says, well, he had listened to it, but I don't know what is taking him so long to respond. Few more weeks go by. I call him again, and I'm like, by this time, I'm like, I'm just fed up with it. Like, a, you know, uh, ma'am, this is my last call. After this, I won't call anymore. But I would still love a response. If this is not it, then okay. So whatever. Yeah. Week later, he calls me, and he's like, "Dude, I'm so sorry. I've been busy. By by this time, he had a couple of top forty hits and oh, whatnot. Wow. His own record label, his own uh, Fresh Fruit record label." And um, he's like, I heard the demo, and it's incredible. Wow. I actually hear talent in you. And <laughs> even though the sounds can be better and some programming here and there, I hear massive talent in you. And I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Uh, can I come over and let you hear more demos, mm. uh, newer demos? And he's like, sure. And so we started to do that like every month or so. Every couple of months, I would go to his house. We'd listen to my demos. He'd mm. give me advice. He'd give me producer tips. He would let me hear tracks by Carl Gregg and uh, DJ DJ Pierre. He was mm. he was a fan of a lot of Strictly Rhythm records, Armand van Helden stuff. And he was like, this is how it should sound. Yeah. And try and program this, try and EQ that. So I leveled up through that. Mm. Where at about one and a half year later... He offered me my first record deal oh, wow. ever. And so at the age of 18 and 1995, mm. I got my first record deal. October 1995, I put out my first vinyl. And what was that record? Uh, well, we, we had made uh, my own record label because he said my, my sound was actually very New York. I was mm. very much inspired by MK myself. Yeah. Uh, strictly rhythm and he's like it should not look like anything dutch mm. should be its own record label we're gonna have it in vinyl with the little plastic in there it's just dark and some stripes yeah 
my first ever track that came out is called Booty Twister. <laughs> do you and, still play uh, it? Do you ever play it? You know what? I would play it in like a, a kind of like more of a deep house yeah, yeah. set. Yeah. So mind you, my, my first release and the tracks I was making at that time were very much MK, like strictly mm. rhythm, like very, very housey. It's amazing how, because I, I had uh, MK on the podcast a couple of months ago, and it's amazing how much influence he's given to the industry over the years, and also like how much influence he gave when he wasn't actually doing it, when he, he'd stopped and he'd moved to hip-hop, and people were still referencing his, his records. It's kind of amazing to have... I wouldn't say there's many people in the industry that have actually done that in the past and still do it today. You know what? I I very much agree with you. Mm. And what I love about MK and his sound is that it's a timeless sound and he doesn't even realize it. He didn't make it, you know, with that type of intention. Yeah. But there's, there's a feel and vibe into his tracks where you know, if I, I could be hating and saying that, you know, uh, his his tracks currently sound similar to his tracks like two decades ago. And it's really because of this timeless sound. And it's yeah. something that inspires me currently where I'm now in a, in a realm where I'm like, I need to make these type of timeless mm. like house tracks. And it doesn't necessarily need to be house house or you know uh, it could be commercial could be more underground could be more tech could mm. be more deep but a sort of like a, a timeless i feel that's how you make the classics i totally somehow. agree i think for me also it's it's about just being as authentic as possible to yourself and i think that's the thing that i've seen with some of the biggest artists in in the world where they're just that they're not there to look at fashions they're not there to follow fashions they're there to just write music for themselves and for me that's where that you get the timelessness from the records really yeah i feel I, so too i want to yeah. i want to go back to when you first started djing because there's was production before djing absolutely because yeah, you're I, you're known to be an exceptional dj and yeah. I've seen you play years ago and you won't even remember meeting me, but in Ibiza a very long time ago. Um, but I want to talk about how kind of that process started um, and what it took to get to where you're at now. Okay. Well, wait, wait a second. So I met you? Yeah, we met a very this, long time ago. Was this without beard? Pre-beard. Um, Pre-beard. This was, you were playing for Cream um amnesia yeah so i used to i used to record a lot of dj sets for radio one and for a polish radio station um and a guy called tom brown um i used to work for and we would wow. we would constantly like we'd come into cream mic up um the 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 club and then record the, the, the sets from there so wow. we, we met multiple times but i wouldn't oh, ever expect no. you to to remember me at all oh i'm sorry about that oh, no, it's yeah it's amazing legendary times yeah um yeah the djing part is interesting because 
at a certain point, my, um, my first ex-wife mm. was then my girlfriend. Uh, end of the 90s in the Netherlands, it was a trend for female DJs to come up. Yeah. And to get themselves out there. And she was inspired by this one female DJ. Shout out uh, 100% Isis. You probably won't know her. No, but I've never heard of her. Shout out to her. She was influencing uh, a lot of people. And so she had bought two decks and a mm. mixer. Two sound lab band uh, belt, vinyl belt players. Belt driven, yeah. Belt driven players. So she, uh, I, I had a, by this time I had my own record collection because of the tracks I had released. Mm. So she tried mixing a few tracks and, and she got really frustrated with it. She couldn't do it. She thought it was way easier. She threw the headphones, the pair of headphones <laughs> in the side of the room. And for the next couple of weeks, I was looking at these turntables sitting there doing nothing. Catching and I was dust. like, hmm, you know what? I'll just give it a shot. And so I started to mix and I could, I could instantly do it because I know music, I know intervals. Yeah. I understood that I needed to layer, layer the beats. And so it was really quite easy for me. And then I started thinking, so if I'm making music for DJs, I should actually start knowing what a DJ desires yeah. for my tracks. Yeah. So I kind of started that using it as a tool to enhance my productions but then with everything I do, it's all or nothing. Mm. And so I wanted to, when I started DJing, I just wanted to know all the ins and outs of DJing, got myself uh, some SLs, uh, started listening to a lot of more technical DJs. So a mm. lot of my, uh, uh, my DJ skills come from listening to Jeff Mills mm -hmm. and Dave Clark, yeah. guys like Frankie Bones. Uh, I started listening to them and, and the stuff they, they were doing like the trickery and whatnot, I was like, this is like producing on the fly. Mm. So you mean to say that what I do in the studio, like chopping up beats or messing with the EQ, I can do all of this in DJ form as well. Yeah. And therefore I started to developing, to develop these DJ skills to be able to have that similar type of freedom. Mm. And it could, mind you, this was a longer process because only switching from the belt drives to the SLs, then to get, get the pitch technique right, took me at least two years. Yeah. I remember my girlfriend telling me, because I was listening to my own cassette uh, tapes, my DJ mixes um, as practice. And sometimes I would, we, would listen, we would listen to some type of radio show. And then I would sneak in one of my cassettes and whenever she heard mistakes, she was like, is this you mixing this cassette? Is this your DJ mixing? <laughs> like, yeah, you got me. But I got better and better. And at yeah. a certain point, she couldn't even recognize me. So I, I got tighter. And then I started doing my tricks. And yeah, so um, end of the 90s, I had started to make more and more techno. Mm. And... Uh, my first global breakthrough, I need to talk about that, was my remix for Green Velvet, The Stalker. Yeah, such a cheat. Which, <laughs> which, uh, which coincidentally, I heard in a, in a club, in a local club. I was dancing, I was, I was out, I heard the original, 
And I heard that bass line. I was like, wow, that bass line is amazing. But I think the beats can use a bit more shuffle mm. and a bit more energy. Like I wanted some sort of build up in there into a drop. How good is that and, bass line? Sorry, but yeah, that bass line is so good. It's massive. Doon, well, all doon, of those doon, sounds. Doon, 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 yeah. doon. Oh, it's so yeah. good. I love that oh. record. And um, I remember the week later, I got the assignment to do the remix because uh, Gaston, he ha had gotten the remix assignment mm. and he said to the record label, hey, can we give this new talent that we have a shot? Mm. His name's Laidback Luke. Uh, you may, may not know him, but uh, maybe he can do something with it. Mm. So I got the B side of it. They got the A side of it. The B side got uh, played by Carl Cox, got picked up by Carl Cox. Then Dave Angel and then the whole of the techno community mm. started playing it and it just broke through. Wow. And thanks to that, I could DJ globally. Mind you, I had only been DJing for about a year in my bedroom. Yeah. I could start DJing globally. Um, and I broke through as a as a techno DJ. <laughs> That's so dope. I didn't know I didn't know you remixed that. I need to hear that remix. I've not yeah. heard it. I okay. think you might enjoy that. It's really dirty, though. I was I was uh, so much into like the dirty hi hats type of sound. Yeah. Like at a certain point, I started uh, sampling my hi hats on like lower bit rates just mm. to get that crunch in there. And at a certain point in my development, I got really bored with the nine hundred nine sounds, where I was like, "Man, I need to do something to it yeah. to make it sound less nine hundred nine." And and you'll hear that in that remix. I'll check that one out. Definitely. So what year was that when, when you started DJing, for, like, worldwide? 1997. Got my first international gig in Reading in the UK. Well, it's Checkpoint famous. Charlie. <laughs> Shout out Checkpoint Charlie. Was that, I remember. Was that, an, was that the illegal raves? No, no this, no. Was, this was legal. But I think one of my first shows was actually, like, either before or after Derek May. Wow. So no pressure. Yeah, right? no pressure at all. I remember, I remember getting on the stage and I was so nervous. I didn't anticipate that. My hands were shaking and I, I couldn't actually like hold the needle <laughs> in the record. And I remember just with every track, I just threw the needle in the middle of the record and ju then just spun it back to try and get the, to get the beginning the of it. Yeah, I love that. What was it like playing in those days? Um amazing yeah. i mean the uncertainty of a needle skipping is yeah. is terrible and especially with all those bass frequencies um but there's there's a an amazing sort of nostalgia in there also where there were no led screens mm. there was no co2 yeah uh it was a smoky room with strobes mm. and yeah it was glorious there's something amazing about that and i feel like when <clears throat> we go back and play in a smaller venue with that's smoky and got strobes again it goes back to that nostalgia and there's just something super special about that feeling um do you ever get the chance to do that nowadays not really not no. really no and i i do need to because yeah, and especially now because, you know, I, I've been in the commercial corner mm. for such a long time. It's it's more of like a, my areas that, that I perform are like VIP, VIP clubs yeah. and there needs to be CO2 and there needs to be the LED. Mm. Uh, 
but one of one of most of my all-time favorite parties were just like the the basic ones where yeah. I think I think the nostalgia is where instead of feeling like the conductor for the crowd mm. you become part of the crowd totally and to, together you you build that energy and mm. it's almost like as if you're on the dance floor with them mm. no I agree with you on that I agree with you on that um so 1997 you said you would you started DJing worldwide was this a regular thing where it was every weekend or was it sporadic? Probably every month. But yeah. for me, uh, this was a lot of traveling already. Yeah. Um, yeah you, I, go on, after you. No, I, had a, I had a good good little international run uh, those years after yeah. until, until I landed back in the Netherlands uh, career-wise. Mm. Um, at a certain point, I... Uh, 1999 i broke through in the netherlands at awakenings festival yeah and then uh well i I remember this this is this is funny i had a slot 8 a.m to 10 a.m in the morning and me not having i'm not you know a druggy party dude i'm like a like a producer nerd so i wasn't gonna be about like going throughout the night so Mm. i actually had set my alarm for like 5 a.m had a bit of breakfast then went out to the show, really fresh. 8 a.m. I remember playing after must have been Umek or some someone. Yeah. And uh, I smashed the place. This mm. is because I had been a, a loyal fan of Awakenings. Yeah. And I'd gone to their shows, and I was on that dance floor dancing, and I knew what that dance floor wanted. Yeah. So I decided at 8 a.m. I'm I was going to give all that to them. Mm. And I did, and I had people climbing up on the on the fence to find out what my DJ name was. Wow. And when I ended, this was like, I'm still getting goosebumps. There was like uh, a brand new talent had stood up. And uh, I remember that week as well, I got uh, approached by a famous Dutch booking, mm. uh, booking agency. And they wanted to sign me. And from then on, I could play every weekend in the Netherlands. And it was from then on, I gave up my day job as a graphic designer. Mm. And yeah, started my my professional music career. Amazing. And what year was that? 1999? 1999. Yeah. 1999 to 2022 is a long career in music. And obviously, there's many more years to go ahead of this. Um, when was it that you started releasing on size? Oh, this was a, this was an awesome revolution yeah. as well. So I, I do have to tell you why I parted with techno and, um, okay. Yeah. I, tell me. I, cause, cause let me tell you, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what you are doing, what Thank you are playing. I love your stuff. I buy your stuff. And whenever I get the chance, I play it. And um, I always feel I need to explain people why I left techno at a certain point because I, um, I came up with uh, Be- Adam Bayer, mm-hmm. Umek, and Marco Corolla like in about the same year all of us went global. Yeah. And so I was part of that crew. We would meet up. I still, you know, see Bayer on tour and we, we always chat and whatnot. And it's, uh, you know, from the outside, it's okay. So why did this guy s- sell his soul for EDM music, and what, <laughs> what happened? And um, the truth is, 
I was quite successful being an international techno uh, DJ. Yeah. I had releases on, on amazing labels. I was doing it. But in the studio, the techno that I was playing was more of like a, a two-bar loop. Yeah. Going on and on to add right and coming from a musical family, so I'm half Dutch, half Filipino. Yeah. On my Filipino side, I also have a very musical family. But us Filipinos, and I'm really just speaking about all the Filipinos in the world, we love cheesy music. I figured this out. Finally, I figured this out. Whenever I'm in the Philippines and other, you know, if there's anyone Filipino listening here, they can vouch for me. The biggest tracks in the Philippines are the sing-along ballads. Yeah. In a club, in a bar, sing-along ballads. Mm. Okay, so we have my European side, my European side, which loves techno. Yeah. And we have this cheesy side that's stuck in there doing nothing. And so at a certain point, I wanted to have chords in my techno. I wanted mm. to have vocals in my techno. I wanted to have big, big sing-along breakdowns. Mm. And I couldn't do it because it wasn't techno anymore. Yeah. And I kept on bumping into that in the studio. So much so that at a certain point, I gave myself a choice. Either I stop making, I stop making music or I will allow me to make any type of music yeah. that I want. And it was there that I parted from my uh, my techno career, and I had a few years of of drought yeah. where I wasn't taking on any techno shows anymore. Uh, I didn't make a name for myself in the house realms mm. yet, so this was tough. But I was happy in the studio because I, I was making I was actually making electro synth pop from then on. Wow. Just I was grabbing the guitar again. I was programming drums, chord changes, and yeah, I was just making songs. Mm. And I was so happy with that. And at a certain point, I got I found myself at the foundation of EDM. Yeah. And I started releasing, I started to do music with Steve Angelo yeah. in Sweden. Steve Angelo, who had been a fanboy of me, and sorry, this sounds like diminishing, but I say it with the highest respect, of like course. he was a fanboy of yeah. myself because I had a, a forum. Mm. A forum online in the forum days uh, where guys like Afrojack were on, yeah. Nicky Romero, Avicii, Steve Angelo was one of them. And he loved me because in 1999, I had made an official remix for Daft Punk. Yeah, He loves Daft Punk. Swedish House Mafia loves Daft Punk. Still, I had done an official remix. And, um, Which track and did I, you remix? As uh, Crescendals. Yeah. <clears throat> And uh, at, a, at a certain point, we started talking to each other. And Steve was like, dude, I would love to make music with you. He was exploding mm. with his label and his momentum was coming. And I was like, man, you know what? That's, that's a good idea. Yeah. I'll just go to Stockholm every year and make music with you guys. And yeah. started, you know, meeting the Swedish house mafia and whatnot. When I saw Steve Angelo at work, the way his tracks were sounding was top-tier loudness war at mm, that time. Yeah, yeah. There was no track, no producer, no dance music producer in the world that was getting that much low-end frequency and that much loudness in their tracks. Yeah. Sitting next to him, watching him produce, I was like, that's how they did it. 
And I went back to the studio because at this time I was personally making my, trying to make my own kick drums, yeah. my own hi-hats from scratch, every track. And what they did, they actually sampled a kick drum mm -hmm. from like a big track. Yeah. And if you use that as your bass to build upon, your track will sound overall good. sound yeah, yeah. fat. Yeah. And I was like, man, that saves so much time. And so I went from making one track in two or three weeks to making a track in four hours yeah. sounding immense yeah. in the low end. And so I have to give a shout out to Steve Angelo and the Swedish House Mafia for revolutionizing my production techniques at that time. And yeah, I started re releasing tracks on size. Yeah, that was also a very interesting time because we're talking like 2004, 2005 time, maybe 2006. I remember that coming because that was when I was just starting producing um and there was a huge loudness battle on how to get your tracks to sound as loud as possible and still not distort or be sounding terrible um which it must have been an amazing kind of era for you from going from the analog days where everything was very kind of organic I guess is the easiest word to, to describe to then a very digital era where a lot of things are just done on plugins and just making things as in your face as possible. However, your early size records, for me, I wouldn't have classed as EDM. I would personally would, it was kind of like a mixture between the blog house stage period and then house music and i felt like they only got into the edm a little bit later on um what was that period what was your first release on size was it uh killing the kitchen i believe okay it was and what yep. was your first big release that was like kind of got you to the point where you were like okay i'm back i'm back in in this realm Um, yeah, surely that was a B that yeah. I made together with Steve Angelo. That, that was massive because I, I, I'd love to mention break down the house, but break down the house. So let me, let me tell you the, the timeline. So, so I said after techno, I started making electro yeah. synth pop and that it coincided with, um, Sp Sp Fisher Spooner. Fisher Spooner coming up and all that like alternative band yeah. type of electro house mm -hmm. that evolved into electro house yeah. where Eric Prids like uh, really made his stamp mm -hmm. using just like big synthy basses on the kick drum yeah and so where, where I was at I still had those MK type of influences mm. with that type of influence I made break down the house and I released it in like the, the electro house era. Yeah. And none, it wasn't popular. None of these electro house DJs wanted to play it because it was way too housey. It had yeah. that Robin S organ in there, had a, had a weird bleep. I used to play uh, it all the time. I loved that record. Ah, oh, thanks, man. I loved that record. It was, it was amazing. I was listening through your old stuff earlier as well. And I forgot you made that, how, that record, but I, played that so many times it's great hey, it's great nice that's good to hear so when all of this was happening internationally i guess i gotta mention the blog house because um 
I didn't realize that it was actually called that, but uh, Switch yeah. was making moves in the Netherlands uh, with a solid grooves track, yeah. solid grooves tracks. And um, the whole of the Netherlands was getting housier and bleepier at mm. that time. And so I kind of fused the two <clears throat> and made break down the house and no label wanted to sign it for a good one and a half to two years mm. while I was wrecking like festivals and clubs <laughs> with it. And I, at a certain point, I was like, man, I'm just going to put it out on Mixmash on yeah. my own label. And finally, it made history because of that. But it was it was weird because it was completely against the grain. Um, so from from the blog house and the, and the electro house, this slowly morphed into like what we know as as EDM. EDM. Now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, when B came out. For me, that was like a pivotal moment in my career not for me personally but musically um at that in that time was it 2008 yes yeah um how was that when that came out for you i still have goosebumps thinking of it it was funny because i'll tell you the backstory which which was awesome like so i had these annual um annual meetups with the swedish house mafia in Stockholm making music with them. So yeah. we were making tracks and we had made, I think this was the same week as Leave the World Behind. So we had made Leave the World Behind, made another track with uh, Ingrosso and Angelo. And at a certain point, both Axwell and Ingrosso said, well, we finished two massive tracks. Mm. We're going to go out and party and we're going to, you know, get to a, a bar and get drunk. And Steve and I were, we were like, man, no, there's, there's more here. Yeah. So I what I brought to that session was, dude, you got to hear this track that's been played out in the Netherlands. It's called Debonair, Samir's anthem, Samir's theme. Mm. And the, the beat programming was boom, 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 boom. And Steve uh, listened to it and he's like, okay. So he programmed our kick drum like that. And this was also the same time, and this is where, where, this, where, where we go back full circle, the Korg M1 plug-in came mm, out. Yeah. The synth where I was producing the whole summer on when I was 15 was there in plug-in form. And I was like, dude, the Robin S organ is also in here. Yeah. Let's use it. And we made this melody. And Steve whipped up that Rowetta vocal. Shout yeah. out Rowetta. Looped it. I didn't know it was Rowetta. Yeah. I knew it was yeah. somebody similar, yeah. but I didn't know it was actually her. Yeah, and um, I'll tell you more about Rowetta in a bit, but man, magic happened. Yeah. Uh, th three and a half hours later, here's a fun fact. The organ, which I had programmed in, in my FL studio, mm. bounced it to Steve Angelo's logic, still has ticks in the beginning and in the end of the loop. And I was like, Steve, should we fix that? And he was like, nah, man, that's fine. Like that. <laughs> and it was literally like four or five uh, channels but the magic, him and I were in the studio and we we're like, man, wow, incredible. Mm. So a slightly uh, drunk uh, Sebastian Ingrosso comes back to the studio after partied and we let him hear B and he was slapping himself in the forehead. Like, <laughs> dude, I am not a part of this. Like, wait, can we like tweak some more? Like, what's going on? Yeah. And Steve and I just... Uh, 
just ran with it. And amongst the first DJs that started playing that were Eric Morillo. Got to mm. give a shout out to Mark Knight as well. And this was also a track that was not like in any popular sounding realms. No, this was something completely different, but it was a wrecker on the dance floor. Like, yeah, it works. I was living in Ibiza at that time when it came out. And those were the years when you would have like tunes of the summer. And you'd go pretty much past every bar, every club, you would hear a record. And that year, that was one of the records. Um, was that the same year as Man With A Red Face, the Funk Agenda remix, Funk Agenda and Mark Knight? Possibly. Yeah, I yeah, think possibly, it was. Yeah. And Good times. Yeah, man. The music then was, and I'm not, say, I'm not saying it's, it's bad now because music's great now, but the, that year was game-changing. Yeah, definitely hit different. Definitely yeah. hit different. Because what Steven, Steve and I were after, we weren't after like making a be the best st streamable music because we, we didn't have Spotify yet. There was no Spotify. We were looking for like a, a warmer and a housier feel, but something that would like really work on a dance floor. Like yeah. if you would be stood there on the dance floor, would you like dance to it? Would you go wild to it? Or would you be like, oh yeah, this is cool. Mm. And yeah, we were always looking for that ultimate dance floor feeling. It's really interesting that you say that, that we weren't trying to make streamable music. It's really sad that we think like that. Yeah. It's the algorithm that determines now, right? To be fair. And I think maybe maybe that is the reason why the music has changed a lot. Because we're not actually not I can't speak for everybody, but I was I was talking to Alex from Denson Pika yesterday about this actually. And he has like a side project. Um and he runs a record label called Hypercolor, which I'm sure you know, but also he has his uh, Needed Pains on Then Speaker. And we were talking about how he has a side project that he released a record, like an album on um, Hypercolor. And I was like, how did it do? And he's like, I don't know. He was like, I don't care. I literally wrote that music because I loved writing it and I don't care about the streams. I don't care about the sales. It's just great music and, and I'm happy for it. And I was like, that's such an, like a refreshing mindset to have. And he and I said, are you the same with Denson Peak? He was like, no, completely opposite. He was like, when we're, when we're looking at the Denson Peak stuff, it's, it's, we're, we're tracking it and we're worrying about it. And he was like, it changes the music. When was the track? I want to go back to your old stuff, but this is like, we're kind of going on a tangent. But when was it for you where you were like, I have to make music that turn that that streams well and it does successfully. Well, it, it also has to do with uh, running a record label, my mix mash record label. Yeah. <clears throat> it's it's just very simple. Um, to keep a label running, you need to have sales. Yeah. Uh, back then, it was vinyls, CDs, mm. um, and then the amount of beatport sales, and that became, you know, streaming. And so, yeah, sometimes tracks don't don't do well instantly, and it's worrisome. But then, for me, there's always a hope because you know a track like "Break Down the House" didn't didn't do anything mm. at first. Even "Leave the World Behind," we we never got like 
we entered the, the top 40 in the UK, I think, but it went, never went like top 30. But then years go by, yeah. and friends tell friends, and they tell other friends, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it's a classic, and I love that. I've had that with so many of my tracks. Mm-hmm. And it sometimes feels like there's no room for that anymore. It yeah. needs to be an immediate result or else it's nothing. You have two weeks now. Two weeks yeah. for the record to get playlisted by the playlist gods at Spotify. And if it doesn't get playlisted with, within at least a month, it's almost game over on your record. Unless like I would, my, my last record that did really well was a, a record called Rock With Me. Um, and I say, well, for, it did well for me, not in on your numbers, but it was, it's on Patrick Toppin's label trick. Um, and it came out and it did like 250,000 streams, which we were just like, okay, we didn't expect it to do anything. Right. So it did what it did. And then all of a sudden it got put to number one on techno bunker. And I think today it's literally just hit 3 million. Whoa. And for like a techno record that's wow. like I literally made in two hours, it's pretty amazing. But it just goes to show that which it's just purely there's there's no like there's none of that slowly growing a record. It's whether it gets put on a playlist and if it doesn't and it doesn't get put in the top ten of the playlist, you it's just on to the next. And and that record's kind of lost into the hibisque of of music which is really sad to me if i'm honest well you know you know where i am right now will right now i don't even care about the success of a record anymore like because i've had a couple of big peaks over the last couple of years Mm. and because you're always on to the next like either no expectations ever yeah so if it peaks it's like yeah whatever i'm already in my new yeah new project or if it doesn't, nothing, you're like, whatever, I'm in my new project. Mm. And I, I do just want to emphasize that this ha- has to do with a certain artistic mental health yeah. uh, thing where, you know, if I, if I start worrying about these things, I can't make music. Mm. Where I feel the, the real gold in music is, is in the actual process of making the track. Yeah. Where you are in the studio and you're thinking wow, this is amazing. I'm mm. really enjoying this right now. If only I could see it on a dance floor or you're even dancing in the studio. Anything that happens after that should be whatever. Yeah. Because it'll only affect you like either positively or mentally, but it does something to you. Mm. Whereas it doesn't matter how successful, rich, famous, uh, unrich, not famous at all you are, this magic in the studio will always be yours. And that's what I'm focusing on nowadays. That's beautiful. How, what was the process to get to that? Because I I know, I know that feeling. And I feel like most people that have produced records or most people that have achieved something that that they're passionate about, everyone has, when everyone, anyone has a passion, there is that feeling there somewhere, whether that's singing, songwriting, producing, drawing graffiti like anything to do with the creative side of things but how did you get to that process where you're at now well uh, first we need to realize that whenever you're a creative person and that whenever you're you create it can be affected by the world Mm. and when it gets affected by the world 
it'll tamper with your artistry. Mm. What the beauty is of our artistry is that we can literally be sitting somewhere, come up with something, and then actually create that something mm. and give it out to the world. That's amazing. From nothing, just by thought, giving giving a piece of memory or, you know, there's plenty of those messages out there where mm. it's like, you know, your track did this or that to me or holds, well, like you just said, uh, your Summer in Ibiza is linked to one of my tracks. Yeah. Dude, that's magic. Yeah. Um, and that is what it's all about, really. And if you start focusing on the numbers and uh, you're not streaming well and um, you just get tampered with mentally. <clears throat> no, I, I and it's a, feel you. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, I feel <clears throat> you. I'm in, that, I'm in that position right now, if I'm honest. It's like, it's that the pressure of wanting more for my career and then trying to translate that in the studio and it just doesn't work <laughs> it, it goes to shit because you're in it for the doing it for the wrong reasons rather Excuse than me. no worries let me um let me talk to to you, you uh, to to you about your first big track okay which was the track that put will clark on the map um that was two um, I had kind of two, two moments where I don't know. I guess my first ever one was a track called "Booty Percolating," um, nice. which came out on Worthy's label, Anabatic. I believe it came out in 2014, um, and that was the first record where other DJs were playing it. And so it, we we have two tracks that mean something to us. That have the title booty. Yeah, that's why I laughed. <laughs> um, and that wasn't when my career started at all. That was just when I kind of got my first in inroad of um, people supporting my records. But then I quit six months after. I stopped music for six months because I was so. It was so. Jamie Jones was playing my records. Jamie Jones, Seth Troxler, the Martinez brothers, um, eats everything. And they were like gods at the time. It was like when they were kind of really blowing up. MK was playing it as well. And I was in talks with Jamie and Jamie was like, yeah, I'd love an EP for Hot Creations. Um, And I was like, okay, I need to make Hot Creations music now. And you're shaking your head because you know exactly that process where I was trying to write music for Hot Creations and I didn't write Hot Creations music. I wrote Will Clark music and Booty Percolating. No, Booty, Big Booty was a Will Clark record. It wasn't anything else. It, it definitely wasn't a Hot Creations record. And the reason why everyone was playing it was because it didn't sound like everything else. But I didn't understand that at the time and I hadn't been through that process. So yeah, I quit for six months and and yeah, then the rest is rest is history. But I think my first big record that really, really moved the needle for me and I started touring was two years later, which is actually another booty record called Booty Percolating. Um, uh-huh. And that came out on, on Dirty Bird. And I, from then on, I was touring full time. 
Wow, on Dirty Bird. So it's funny because I have you in this whole like techno bracket, but yeah. actually you've been your successes were more in the housey and tech house, deep yeah. house realms. Wow. So, yeah, so Dirty Bird was the reason. Dirty Bird was the the first label that I would class as like my home um, in in music at that time, um, and then in the last three to four years, I kind of moved directions and then kind of moved into the more techno area which for me is like i was i wasn't really into techno when i was younger i was into like soulful soulful house with like defected um at strictly rhythm as well and that was kind of where i first started um but yeah and and now i'm obviously doing my own label so fascinating so i i think we're on to something here well because i had recently made a, a vlog about what happens after your first success. Yeah. And what a, not a lot of people know that more often than not, after your big success, you come into like a, a big dip because Massive. there's supposed to be this follow-up. Mm. And no one is really pressuring you other than yourself saying, mm. we need a follow-up yeah. or what's next? And that is, so I was shaking my head indeed because it, that's heavy. So that coincided for me with my first burnout ever uh, at the age of 20. Mm. Where <laughs> so I, young. I couldn't so I, young. I, I couldn't make a, a follow-up. Yeah. And mind you, I was always that guy that used to say, ah, oh, uh, burnouts aren't real. Like you, you guys just got to man up. And, it's, mm. and then I got hit, hit by one myself and I was like, oh, okay, now I understand. Yeah. Um, but the pressure of a follow-up is terrible. So then the magic formula should be, perhaps should be going back to that mindset mm. as how, when you made booty percolating or your, your first booty track, Yeah, that sort of possibly playfulness, non-pressure, like I'm just going to make awesome music or whatever, like something that I'm feeling in the studio right now. Yeah. No, you're one hundred percent right. You're one hundred percent right. I think for me as well, though, and I'm not too sure if you you've been through this as well, during your career, which I'm sure you have. I'm I want to create a different sound to what I've been making in over the last like two three years and kind of evolve. And that's the thing where I'm like, it's very easy to go in the studio and just re replicate what you've made over the years. Um, because it's kind of like that muscle memory. But I think the hard thing for me is going in and actually creating that something that I haven't created before and using different sounds that I haven't used before and just enjoying that process of what we all went through when we were kids and, and initially started producing. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely a process and talking to you actually is really really helpful because it just brings back that that kind of the magic feeling of what it should be and rather than what it shouldn't be as well um when i want to go back to after b came out because i can imagine that being pretty life-changing yes um, well, it got taken up a notch as well when hardwell made the the bootleg between yeah. b uh, and Mobin Masters show yeah. me love. Yeah, like he put the two together, and I remember I had actually come come out of like a new session in Stockholm with the Swedes, and I had just um, 
I was booked for, for a show in Sweden at the end of the week. And I remember Hardwell sending that to me. I was, I was like listening like two days before the show. I was listening to it. And I was like, wow, <laughs> <laughs> I think this can work. Like, yeah. okay, I can see that on the dance floor. And, and mind you, so I got to give a shout out to Stonebridge, who was the original man that remixed Robin S. Is Show Me Love. love yeah. That's the classic of all classics. But he's from Sweden. Yeah. So in Sweden, this is a massive track. Banger, this yeah. is like folklore almost. Right. When was that? Ninety three. That came out. I think. Ninety two. Ninety two. Wow. Yep. Yep. And um, and so I I played it out mm. in Stockholm at the end of the week, and my God, the whole place erupted. I had the the Swedes run the Swedes running into my booth like, asking me what what this mashup was and mm. what was going on, and people were just losing it. I was like, okay, so this was successful. Let's try it on different shows. Yeah. And the following two years, I wrecked every festival and every show with that track. Mm. Obviously, it spread to all the other DJs. Everyone was playing it. Everyone. Two years later, Steve and I looked at each other and we were like, dude, because it's a mashup, right? Yeah. It's and it didn't really exist, and we were looking at each other. We were like, "Man, we got to make this an ov- official version. Mm. It's so successful on the floors. Let's just, you know, this needs to be put out yeah. officially." And so then we brought in Rowetta to do the first part. Yeah, uh, and it was amazing working with such a legend, recording mm. her uh, her vocal. And then we had the real Robin S. re-sing her own vocals. On the version as oh, well, amazing. and it's crazy. Yeah, That's and special. so yeah, yeah. That that was absolutely a, a huge highlight for my career, for yeah. sure. So what what I want to talk about the highs and the lows of that. Um, let's start with the highs. When that came out, you were obviously touring full time and touring a lot as it was. What changed? Yeah, actually. I need to talk to you about a few highs and lows in my career, if we can sneak that in, because yeah, of course, it, I'd love this to. is this is very valuable, mm. actually. So my first high, I have obviously after the Green Velvet Stalker remix launched my techno career. At a certain point, I couldn't make techno anymore. I wanted yeah. to stop making music. So out of that, I I started to make all the music that I desired and wanted to make. In 2003, I had a top a number one top 40 hit in the Netherlands with mm. uh, the Dance Valley Festival, which was the biggest festival in the Netherlands. I made the theme song. Yeah. I ended up being number one over Justin Bieber and over a- anyone else. In the Netherlands, I had made it. All of a sudden, I was, because I had a video, I was like a TV personality. Yeah. I did it. I was there. 2004 comes around, and I had just only been enjoying my fortune and fame in the netherlands <laughs> been doing nothing else but like not releasing music or anything 2004 comes around no one wants to do with me because i was commercial i mm. wasn't putting out any music no one was asking me for a remix yeah i had nothing at the end of 2004 super dip then my next revolution came when i started producing with steve angelo so yeah. i had to go international i had to go out of the country my and so this was a, a long peak yeah kind of like working towards 2010 um i was one of the people that brought the the typical dutch sound out of the netherlands mm. linking david Guetta with 
with people like Afrojack, yeah. pushing Afrojack, uh, guys like Chucky and I, we came up, we were pushing this bleepy Dutch sound. Mm. This was a nice peak. And from that, like, gradual, very gradual peak, I've been coming down ever since, what was it, 2013, to where I'm at now, where it's like, none of the EDM, EDM guys get booked, really. We yeah. don't really get much playlists. EDM is gone. Mm-hmm. And now I'm here again. And here is kind of like where a new start begins unfolding for me. And I'm actually really happy with it. Obviously, all of us had COVID and had time to rethink mm. careers and whatnot. But I feel like I'm, I'm not at like a, a low, yeah. but I'm definitely at a point where it's, if this is 2009, I'm currently here. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm getting, getting ready to get back up again, for sure. I think it's really important to kind of for people to hear that though because there's never a career that's up all the time never and you may look at some of the biggest artists in the world right now they've not always been at the top and they won't always be at the top they will have peaks and troughs and and i think it's super normal to have that it's healthy to have that because it means that we evolve as as artists and as human beings mostly um when when was the point when you realized I'm at the peak? The moment I realized that was last year when I looked back at my career. Yeah. And this is the point where I had decided to make more timeless music because mm. I have this, uh, this radio show on Tomorrowland Radio, which is called Way Back Luke. Mm-hmm. It started with me making a tribute for Avicii. Yeah. And then Tomorrowland was like, why don't you make a tribute to, to the DJs you have history with and whom you know? So I've been doing that every month. And then at a certain point, uh, Tomorrowland wanted me to make an episode about me. And in that episode, we would go from my beginning music to like my peak and to, to where I'm at now. And I was like, man, now I... I see the bigger scope. Yeah. Um, listening to that show myself, I got the most goosebumps listening to tracks like Turbulence and and B and B versus Show Me Love. And mm. I was like, man, that was massive indeed. And only now when I look back at the pictures and the tremendous amount of touring, I realize mm. I was at a peak. But being right in the middle of it, I was like, this is my reality. This is normal. Like. Yeah. Okay, I'm at Coachella right now in 2012, and oh, hey, there's Usher backstage, and I remember Diplo hitting me up that we needed to make a track with Beyonce, and I thought he was joking, and so I never followed that up, but he he was real about it. Um, I remember coming to Madonna's house because she wanted to make an album with me, and she is sorry for flexing, but I'm just like... No, people need to hear this. And... um, I came to her house and uh, had a really good conversation with her. And at a certain point, I was like, how, how did you find me? Mind you, this was 2013, mm. 2014. And she was like, well, whenever I'm working out and I say, whose track is this? My, uh, my uh, personal trainer says, this is a guy called Laidback Luke. And she was just like, well, let's, let's have you over. And to me, at that time, all of that was normal. Yeah. Like it just becomes your reality. Mm. And now looking back where I'm like more here, I'm like, man, those times were incredible. And mind you, I'm not, I'm not done, not done at all. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready for the next wave. Yeah. But 
next time I do want to bring more of that awareness in. And, uh, and yeah, uh, what I love that us DJs are doing momentarily is look out for each other's mental health. Mm. Obviously, this um, sprouted enormously with the passing away of Avicii. Yeah. Uh, and we've had more DJs passing away mm -hmm. after that. Yeah. And so I feel it's a, it's a really nice conversation nowadays, even when, when you see someone peaking right now, to just be able to look at that and to reach out and to talk about it. Because mm. what does it really mean? What does it really do with you as a human? What does it do with your family life, your real life? What does it mm. do with spending money and materialistic things? And there's so many facets to this. What, what does this what do? Does do? What does it do? Because you've exactly. been there. What what yeah. does it do? And I think it's like hmm. what what are those things when when you are at that peak when you're when you're in Madonna's house when you're earning extremely good money because that was the era when DJs became rock stars. There wasn't rock bands around; it was DJs, and yep. it was when the Swedish House Mafia came out when you, you when you got to the level where you got to when Avicii kind of came out at that time maybe a little bit after um afrojack all of those all of those guys and girls turned into rock stars what was it like i remember telling everyone we won over hip-hop yeah we did it and uh yeah it was massive absolutely massive uh what it does to you if you don't watch out is you'll you get so I got to give a shout out to my Kung Fu teacher because he always says, about, I was going to ask you about this. My Kung Fu teacher says, don't believe your hype. Yeah. As soon as you start believing your own hype, that's your downfall. Mm. You're going to, because you'll, you'll think you're the shit. Mm. And that always comes with repercussions. Whereas like, um, yeah, people will let you down. You'll let yourself down. You'll break relationships. Um, the materialistic stuff as well. I remember spending money and not valuing money anymore because I had such such a such a high amount of it. Yeah. Like regular cost would be only a percentage, yeah, yeah. like a sm small percentage. And people with a normal job would say, "Oh, how could you spend this on that?" Yeah. And mind you, I'm not a flashy guy, but I did have bizarre spendings at a certain point. But it just becomes a, a percentage of what you're making. And yeah. so uh, not as painful as, as, it, as it should be. Yeah. And now when I'm here and the money is, I'm, I'm right here right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm back. And now I'm like, oh, okay. Now I get it. Now mm. I understand. And I'm actually thankful I'm not here anymore because you can only spend money once. Yeah. And it's actually not the money that makes you happy, right? It's the, the quality of time. Mm. It's, um, it's the overall happiness you experience from it. If you're just buying stuff to try and make you fill in that gap of happiness, mm. it's not where it's at. Yeah. So I'm thankful to, to have learned, learned these lessons throughout. I heard a great, great saying yesterday on a podcast. Um, it's a Lex Friedman pod podcast. And he said... Uh, money is a great servant but a terrible master and I literally like I live a great life and I earn 
reasonably good money, but I'm nowhere near at the point where you guys where you guys were at financially, and I I can see it affect people massively, not just in music in life, um, and it that that saying really hit home to me because it's like when you're just chasing the money if i i can only speak for myself but it's very easy to just get lost in chasing the money and want more and actually forget about what we actually do it for and why we do it and don't get me wrong the business side of this industry is huge and we have to earn money to pay our rent and pay our bills and pay for our kids and do all of that but there's still an element where we have to enjoy the process and i think when you just chase 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 that enjoyment goes out yeah you know what let me uh, let me share this with you science has shown that any amount you make over 70,000 a year mm. does not add up to your happiness yeah. to your overall happiness sure there's things there's things that you can buy but mm. over 70,000 does not add up yeah so if you're everyone who's listening right now and who's making music and is able to to earn about 70,000 per year from music don't look any further you know whatever happens happens and you know if there's a track out there that you made out of fun out of enjoyment and the rest of the world shares that with you that's wonderful mm. but there's actually no pressure yeah so the, there is a cer certain pressure in a society where they're like yeah you gotta make money you gotta earn mm. you gotta milk it and actually that's fake that's yeah. not even a necessity like it'll be nice but indeed don't make money your master because it, it just messes with you yeah this it's interesting is that battle that I feel like we all take to a certain extent because I think a lot of it isn't about wanting the money it's about wanting the success and wanting our records to be heard by multiple millions of people all around the world but what comes with that is the money and what comes with that is the success and the egos and the kind of being put on pedestals um, I I want to speak to you about I what I I, re I did some research on you and it came up with with your kung fu and I'm not too sure how true any of the stories were but it kind of mentioned about you drinking and becoming sober and then take it and then kind of taking up kung fu on a on a serious basis is any of that true and also can you kind of tell me about it a little bit absolutely. I, uh, it's no secret. I had, uh, by now I had three burnouts in my life, mm. but my second burnout coincided with me drinking heavily during, during every show. Mm. Uh, mind you, this was around my 30th and, um, yeah, something horrible had happened, uh, an incident with, with my son, which was my fault where he ended up, uh, having a, a bleeding face because of, uh, me losing my temper because of a hangover. Yeah. And when I saw that, I, I quit cold turkey. Mm. And then I was still wrestling with my burnout. And then my Kung Fu teacher said, and mind you, I'd already been doing Kung Fu for a decade. Yeah. He said, we needed to take your Kung Fu up a notch. Yeah. And, um, so you can handle this tremendous touring that you are doing. And yeah. I was, I was like, man, I, I can't take 
on anything else. Like I'm spending all of my time trying to make music, trying to uphold my career and touring. How am I gonna supposed to like take up Kung Fu on like a higher level right now? And he's like, you know what? We'll just we'll just do it. Started yeah. taking him on tour with me, and he leveled me up. And he leveled me up that much that at a certain point, while touring, I remember Miami Music Week because because he took me out to the World Championships. My uh, my teacher, and I remember Miami Music Week. Uh, I was waking up at like 5 a.m. in the morning to train Kung Fu in my balcony because mm-hmm. the next week after I would have the World Championships in Hong Kong. I also remember uh, in Ibiza, I was a, a guest for Dr- Dimitri Vegas and Like Mike in the Tomorrowland crew yeah. loves a, a bit of a drink. And I said, no, no, I can't. I can't because literally like next week I had my second World Championships and I was training out in the grass in the morning and it Amazing. just kept me kept me so uh, level-headed and and focused and and yeah in in the end my uh, my kung fu teacher made me a kung fu teacher so I'm I'm teaching people globally um, a certified certified teacher mm, and uh, that's amazing. it's a it's amazing how it has helped me deal with stress and pressure and yeah just staying staying level-headed staying zen do you think what do you think would have happened if you didn't take him on tour and you didn't kind of look at your drink inside of, uh, look at your life really and take a look in the mirror? I would probably look 15 years older now yeah. and I would have done many stupid things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I... Um, yeah, I do believe that I've had a, a positive influence on people mm throughout because of my kung fu amazing i love that um i've i've not done this on the podcast before but i'm gonna start doing this more often and kind of asking a question towards the end of i'm gonna kind of keep the same question going um i don't the, the, it's a very generic question but i don't kind of want it to be a generic question um I want it to be for generally, not just music. I want it to be people all all in the world for anybody that's kind of living. And what is, I, I kind of want to, I want, I want people to get some advice from everybody on these podcasts and kind of take away that, like the last bit of, of kind of gold on this podcast. And I guess the question is, is, what one bit of advice would you give to somebody to live a happy life? Well, let me think. Because uh, the answer might seem easy, yeah. but the execution is not. And I think it's, it changes. If I was asked this today, and then I'm asked this in a week's time, it's going to change. Yeah, and I, this is why I love this this question, and I've been thinking about trying to do this more and more on the podcast, and just give and it's going to be. I'm really interested to see what people come up with. What I see uh, coming back a lot around me nowadays is insecurities about oneself mm. taking over, where the interpretation of the world 
means so much to one person that it affects their happiness. Mm. So um, you say I'm talking to you, Will. Yeah. And the only thing I can think about is how how you are how you are judging me mm-hmm. in a negative way. Yeah. And I keep on thinking that. Mm. And you might just sit there and be like, dude, I've a ton of respect for you. Yeah. And I'm just thinking that and it'll affect my happiness where if I can ha- find solace in well, whatever you think of me, it doesn't actually matter to me. Yeah. Like it shouldn't affect my happiness. Yeah. So, however you think of me, good or bad, shouldn't affect my entity, my little universe that I am. Mm. If you can empower yourself with that, and I don't mean you to become cocky or anything, but just to shield yourself from outer anxiety and outer stress. You are the way you are. Mm. We're a multiverse. You're the Will Will Clark universe. I'm the laid-back Luke universe. Yeah. And we can exist. You can exist in your own way and I can exist in your own way and and have peace with it. I don't need to be Will Clark. I could never grow a beard like that. (laughs) And I'm jealous of that beard. Yeah. But hey, that looks good in your on your universe. Yeah. And I should just be happy with the fact that I don't grow a beard. Mm. And you know, I feel that's that's a a point that's been reoccurring around me that a lot of people miss out on Mm. and it affects people so badly. Yeah. Um, say, well, if I if I WhatsApp you tomorrow and you don't respond, where I would go in my mind is, oh, Will must hate me. Like yeah. we've we've had this conversation, um, and he's not interested anymore. Whatever. Yeah. Or I could think he must be busy, like he's mm. editing the show, or you know, he's he's talking to to a new person that he wants to interview. Yeah. So reality can mess with you a little bit. 100%. And, and, and this, this uh, stems out of a certain insecurity that, that's in, uh, rooted, deeply rooted in people. Mm, I love that. Luke, it's been an absolute honor to speak to you, man. I really, really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed this. Um, I feel like we could keep going. We've done an hour and a half um, and it feels like it's been 10 minutes. Um, I'd love to pick this up again another day, hopefully in person, um, and we can, we can do an even longer one. Um, before we get going, I say this, but everyone's heard of you and, but if anybody hasn't heard of you or aren't following you, how can they follow you and how can they kind of keep in touch with what, what you're getting up to? Well, I would recommend if you, if you like this type of, um, this type of, uh, uh, how do you say that? Um, conversation, conversation, like online presence, Definitely go check out my YouTube channel. Amazing. Uh, so it's just laid back, Luke. Uh, I make vlogs. I talk about mental health. I uh, sometimes take you backstage touring. Um, yeah, check it out. It might be fun. Amazing. Thanks so much, dude. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Thank you man. for having me. Wow, that was amazing. Love that conversation. Hope you did. Please share it with your friends. Please give us some reviews and uh, please subscribe. Keep safe. See you next time.